Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's public lecture on making rich people richer and why that doesn't make the rest of us richer. The first of 23 things that we are not popularly told about capitalism. Um, my name is Danny Kwa. I will be chairing the lecture this evening. Before I begin, just a couple of housekeeping rules. For those of you who are intent on tweeting about this event, the recommended hashtag, is, has, as is put up here, is hash LSE capitalism. Um, I encourage people to use that so that we can develop an online conversation about the set of ideas that we will see unfold here. The speaker has, this evening has kindly agreed for a podcast recording of this evening's event to be made available after this evening. And so for those of you who are interested in pursuing up some of the finer points, you will be able to access that as well. We decided that this evening we would see a 45-minute or so presentation by the speaker, followed by a question and answer session. Um, Professor Ha-Jun Chang is a development economist of the first stripe. My friend Andres Velasco, a professor at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, talks about how development economics in the last decade or so has become a discipline based on studying worms and nets, intestinal worms and mosquito nets. To that, we might add how development economics has been rife with, academic development economics has been rife with, studies of textbooks and their application in random experiments across classrooms. The lecture this evening will be about development economics in the large, but it is not about books, worms, and nets. Ha Jun is a development economist instead who looks at the big picture. His previous books, Kicking Away the Ladder, Bad Samaritans, among others, have been translated into over 19 different languages. They have won distinguished prizes and awards, including the Gunnar Myrdal Prize, and the man himself has won the Vasily Leontief Award. Hajun is a development economist who thinks about big ideas. Among his writings are works on corruption and culture, risk in the global financial crisis, banker bonuses, trade and protectionism, deregulation, inequality, intellectual property rights, capital controls, the list goes on and on, on the big things that matter for the developing world. The developing world, after all, still holds five billion of the world's close to seven billion people now, and these large issues matter to their welfare. Hajun is an intelligent scrutinizer of the ills of capitalism, and in the words of none other than Martin Wolf, Harjun is perhaps the world's most effective critic of globalization. This evening, 
He will speak to us on things that they don't tell you about capitalism. The book itself in the title lists 23 items. Item 13 is about how making rich people richer won't really help the rest of us. That by itself would probably occupy all of us for most of this evening, but Harjun is going to tackle that and a good number of the other 22 things in his inimitable style. So please give a warm welcome to Harjun Chang. All right, uh, thank you, Danny, for that very generous uh, introduction. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure to be here this evening talking about you know, what he described as uh, big issues. Well, let me start my talk with uh, this letter, which was published in early September in the Financial Times and caused uh, a bit of a stir. I mean, it was signed by 20 high-profile British economists and call for the abolition of the 50% top income tax rate which was introduced after the outbreak of the current crisis in 2008. And they basically argue that excessively high rates destroy the incentive for the rich to create wealth, jobs, and tax revenue, and therefore it is actually bad for everyone. Now, we can and should uh, debate whether the current threshold of £150,000 is the right threshold for the highest income tax bracket. We can and should debate whether 50% rather than 45 or 55 or 75 or whatever is the appropriate rate for it. But the argument itself is a familiar one because uh, this has been the reigning orthodoxy in the last three decades. Actually, the idea, um, where do I have my PowerPoint uh, control? All right. <laughs> okay, yeah. The idea commonly known as uh, trickle-down economics because it is based on this notion that if you create wealth at the top, it will you know, trickle down, is actually not just uh, three decades old, it's even older than that, at, at least going back to this guy, the classical economist, David Ricardo. Now, the thing about the classical economists is that uh, you know, even though they advocated uh, the free market and free trade, they didn't think like modern neoclassical economists because uh, they thought the society was not made up of individuals, but made up of classes. So in Ricardo's scheme, you had the capitalist class, the workers, and the landlords. And Ricardo argued that basically workers consume everything they own, landlords engage in conspicuous consumption, and only capitalists invest. So you have to concentrate income in their hands so that uh, they can invest, accumulate capital, generate growth, and wealth. Now, interestingly, 
This is exactly the logic used by this other guy. <laughs> well, uh, in case uh, you are too young or too right-wing, uh, this guy is known as Joseph Stalin. When he collectivized uh, Soviet agriculture, what was the logic? The logic was that at the time, most of the Soviet economy was agriculture, but uh, the agriculture sector didn't invest. Yeah? I mean, most of the surplus in the agriculture sector was uh, controlled by the landlords who once again co engaged in conspicuous consumption or what little the peasants had that uh, they had to eat it up yeah? because uh, they were so close to subsistence. Yeah? So Stalin argued, well, you know, given that the Soviet Union needs to industrialize, which requires investment, we need to somehow get those surplus that is spread over the agricultural sector and concentrated in the hands of the investor, namely the Central Planning Committee or GOSPLAN, if we are going to make you know, progress. Well, the, typically, it wasn't actually his idea. It was an idea developed by this guy I bet uh, you've never seen this guy's face because uh, uh, he's uh, more or less uh, erased out of history by Stalin. This is a guy known as Yevgeny Prebrazensky. He was a brilliant self-taught economist who was the leading intellectual of the left wing of the Soviet Communist Party at the time led by Leon Trotsky. Huh? Initially, Stalin, who was on the right wing of the party, said, no, this is a rubbish idea. You know, I mean, uh, Bukharin, the leading economist on the right wing of the Soviet uh, Communist Party, and at one point, a personal friend of uh, Preobrazensky said that uh, we have to ride into socialism on a peasant nag. You know? Basically, they argued, look, I mean, <laughs> we don't particularly like the peasants, but uh, the peasants are what uh, that we have, and we have to somehow work with them. Yeah? So the Stalin and other left -wing, uh, right wingers uh, suppressed uh, Prebrzezinski and Trotsky, of course, uh, and, and finally in 1927, the persecution has become so severe that Prebrzezinski uh, went on an exile. Yes, <laughs> but upon becoming the sole dictator in 1928, Stalin took up the idea and went for collectivization. As you all know, this uh, led to a persecution of the Kulak, or the rich peasants, and a famine in which millions perished. However, his program at least delivered on his central promise, i.e., we will raise investment and raise growth. Now, unfortunately, we cannot say the same about the free market version of Stalinism, that is trickle-down economics. You have to concentrate surplus into the hands of the investor. Because in the last uh, three decades, Despite concentrating wealth at an astonishing rate at the top, investment and growth have actually fallen in most countries. 
especially in the United States, back in 1979, top 1% used to take 10% of national income. By 2006, uh, I haven't got any more recent data, by 2006, they took 23%. So you would think uh, along the line of Ricardo and Stalin that, wow, this might have at least doubled the investment rate in the United States. No, investment as a proportion of GDP has actually fallen. Hmm? Economic growth has fallen. So in other words, that, uh, we could say that our rich have become lazier. Hmm? You know, I mean, especially the American rich people, you know, they are paid two and a half times nearly more than what they used to be, and they are delivering even less than they used to. Yeah? You know, I'm not against uh, the inequality uh, as far as it uh, delivers uh, certain results, yeah? but this is uh, a ripoff. Huh? No, seriously, I mean, why are you giving all these people this money when they haven't delivered? Yeah? So what makes uh, those economists who signed the FT letter think that giving them even more money would actually make them generate more growth? You know, Einstein is supposed to have uh, defined madness as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And this is a classic case of it. Yeah? You know, I mean, these people have failed to deliver for the last 30 years despite massive upward income redistribution. And why do we still have hope in them? Yeah? Anyway, this uh, story about uh, trickle-down economics and 22 other stories are presented in this book uh, that I'm <coughs> talking about today. And as you can see from the cover, the book was uh, inspired by Dr. Seuss, to the extent that I call my chapters things rather than chapters, yeah? after these two famous characters from Cat in the Hat, yeah? thing one and thing two. Hmm? Now thing one says that there's no such thing as a free market. Now this sounds quite counterintuitive. You know? A lot of you might be saying, okay, I mean, you may or may not like the free market, but you know, we, we know it uh, when we see one. Yeah? No, actually we don't. Yeah? Let me give you an example. Back in the 1819, the <clears throat> in the British Parliament, a new law to regulate child labor <clears throat> child labor was uh, tabled. Now, if you knew what this uh, regulation was, uh, you would laugh. Because uh, it was incredibly light touch, if you like, uh, by modern standards. It would ban the employment of only very young children under the age of nine. For older children, they were allowed to work, but with a strict limit uh, to how many hours they can work. Any guess? How many hours per day? Twelve. Yeah, you know, I mean, they were really getting soft. Uh. <laughs> the new rules were only supposed to apply to cotton factories, which were considered particularly harmful for the workers' health because of all this dust that it generated. 
Despite this, this was met by a stiff opposition by those who believed in free market. You know, they said this is undermining the basis of a free economy, namely freedom of contract. You know, these people want to, uh, sorry, these children want to work and these people want to hire them. What is your problem? Yeah? It's not like uh, these people kidnap these uh, uh, children and uh, force them to work. Yeah? It's a free contract. Yeah? Now today, few people, even including the most enthusiastic supporters of free market policies, would advocate bringing child labor back into uh, the existence uh, in order to make uh, lab our labor markets more flexible. Huh? But when you think about it, this is a huge uh, regulation because, okay, I mean, the, the one which was proposed in 1819 uh, in Britain was uh, rather mild, but uh, suppose that you ban child labor overnight in a country where it is widespread, you are basically taking close to half of your population out of uh, the labor market. Huh? You know, can you imagine, I mean, if uh, the, the British government uh, announced that uh, from tomorrow, the, those whose uh, national insurance number ends with an old number will not be able to work, you know, <laughs> there'd be a huge uh, scandal. But, I mean, because uh, when you think about it, it's, uh, that kind of regulation, you know, in many developing countries, something like uh, half of the population are children. You know? Okay, I mean, I exclude the very young under the age of three. No, seriously, I mean, a lot of uh, children work from the age of four or five. Huh? I'm not joking when I say three. Then we are basically talking about uh, taking out you know, at least 40, maybe 45% of uh, potential workforce out of the labor market. Huh? And then we have that kind of uh, labor market regulation but uh, no one sees it uh, these days as a regulation because we have come to accept that the children have the right to have childhood, right to have education, and don't have to work until a certain age. Hmm? But for those uh, who didn't accept uh, those uh, premises, this is uh, one of the most outrageous uh, state intervention. So as I start, as they say, like beauty, freedom of a market is in the eyes of the beholder. So depending on what you believe in, you will consider the same thing as a regulation or part of natural order of things. Now, when you think about it, all markets have numerous regulations on what can be sold and bought, you know, who can sell and buy them, and how the exchange may be conducted. You know, no country, at least legally, has a market for human organs. So that you have restrictions on what can be actually bought and sold. To give you another example, the stock market, you think it's a free market. I mean, you will often read in textbooks that, well, you know, actually, there's no perfect free market uh, in existence, but the stock market comes uh, pretty close to it. But does it? I mean, uh, the stock market being a free market, does it mean that uh, you can turn up 
with a bag of shares of your company at the doorstep of uh, London Stock Exchange and sell them? No way. You have to be listed in the stock market to be able to sell your shares. Huh? And can you just uh, uh, register yourself? No, you have to go through rigorous uh, vetting process. Huh? You have to uh, uh, supply all the accounts yeah? and uh, criminal records of your members of bo board of directors and what have you. Even when you are listed, you cannot just start to buy and sell them for free because that, uh, these uh, shares have to be traded by certified traders. And in all stock markets, you have uh, things like circuit breakers and price ceilings and price floors, you know? so in, or even holidays. You know? In the many stock markets, uh, when price falls by too big a margin, trading suspended, you know? often for a full day to cool down people. You know? So there are all these rules. We actually do not see them only because we take them yeah, for granted, we accept the values underlying these uh, regulations. Yeah? So we think a market is free only because we so totally approve of the regulations that are propping up that particular market that we don't see them. Yeah? It's not because some markets can actually exist without regulations. Yeah? Free market economists like to portray all regulations as politically motivated interferences in the free workings of a natural system. But when there is no way to scientifically define a free market, their positions are actually as political as any other position. So thing one ends by saying that breaking away from the illusion of market objectivity is the first step towards understanding capitalism. Thing two, well, another outrageous statement, companies uh, should not be run in the interest of their owners. Now, this sounds crazy. I mean, that we all know that shareholders own companies. And when you own things, you have interest in the, the Sort of maintaining and developing that object for the long term in the same way that you know, house owners are take better care of uh, their houses than tenants. So why do I say something like this? Well, this might have worked uh, in the 18th, early 19th century, but after we got uh, modern limited liability companies with dispersed ownership, Despite being the legal owners, most shareholders are actually the least committed to the long-term future of the company because they, they are the freest to leave. Yeah? You know, okay, I mean, in theory, workers are free to leave, but you know, they have to uh, think about that uh, alternative uh, job opportunities. You know? I mean, uh, they, they may have to think about their, their, their skills. Uh, they will have to think about uh, you know, whether they are willing to move to another town to get another job, it's not that easy for them to move, although legally there's no you know, barrier to movement in most countries. Huh? 
But shareholders, yeah, if they don't like it, that uh, they can sell it. Yeah, I mean, as far as uh, they are willing to accept a little bit of uh, loss, uh, that they can sell it any time. So they become the least committed to the company. And in the last three decades, with increasing financial deregulation, these free-floating shareholders have become even more powerful because uh, they have now more options uh, to take. Hmm? So much so that the hired managers have decided to run the company for the sake of what is known as shareholder value maximization. What does it mean? Well, it basically means sacking everyone that you can think of, squeezing your suppliers to the maximum, minimizing your investment in things like you know, R&D and machinery and so on, anything that will re bring returns in you know, three, five, seven years. Maximize your short-term profit in that way and give an ever-increasing share of that profit to the shareholders through increased dividends and share buybacks. You know, for example, in the United States uh, in the, until the 1970s, Dividends used to account for 35 to 45% of corporate profit. Today, this ratio is over 60%. Yeah. So basically, the share that is going to the share of the profit that is going to the shareholders rather than being retained by the company has more or less doubled. Yeah. Not only that, I mean, uh, since the 1980s, share buybacks, basically companies buying their own shares to prop up uh, the share prices, has exploded. I mean, it did exist uh, even before the 80s, but uh, I mean, it was a small proportion uh, of, uh, uh, sorry, only a small proportion of uh, company profit was uh, used for that purpose. Uh, so in the 80s, share buybacks are uh, used to account for about 5% of corporate profit the ratio reached 90% in 2007, and in 2008, because uh, a lot of companies didn't make uh, much profit in that year, the ratio reached an absurd 230%. Yeah? So these companies were actually using nearly two and a half times the, the profit they make that in that year to buy back their shares. You know, no wonder yeah, many American companies uh, which are particularly engaged in this kind of practice uh, went down the drain. You know, the classic example is uh, General Motors. General Motors is a company that used to make uh, 3.5 million cars. This was, uh, say, in the 1950s when all the 12 Japanese car companies put together made 70,000. And how they have managed to basically squander that position is mainly through these kind of things. Never invest. I mean, if you need new technology, buy up some smaller foreign company like Saab in Sweden or Daewoo in Korea. Redistribute that profit through dividends and share buybacks.
the long-term decline of the companies which adopted this uh, strategy has become so glaring that Jack Welch, uh, the former CEO of uh, General Electric and the guy who is actually credited to have invented this, this term, shareholder value maximization, few years ago said that shareholder value maximization was, and I'm quoting him, the dumbest idea in the world. Huh? You know, this is like uh, Karl Marx denouncing communism. Huh? I mean, he was supposed to be the guru of it. Yeah? And now it says uh, that this is uh, the dumbest idea in the world. Huh? Anyway, I you know, cannot go on uh, like this uh, for all the things. I'm uh, showing you the list here uh, so that you can absorb it. Um, Well, let me uh, talk about a couple more things. No, say two, maybe three more things, uh, and then uh, take your questions and comments. Uh, well, directly related to what I just said uh, about shareholder value maximization, uh, of course, uh, things 16 and 22, where I talk about the issue of financial reform. Now, there are, of course, uh, many proposals for financial reform floating around at the moment. So I don't want to go into any detail, but I think uh, there's one point uh, that is uh, kind of uh, largely missing in the current debate. And that point is the following. You know, a lot of people define the current problem as the lack of transparency. Of course, uh, there is a lack of transparency, but is it the real problem? My view is that uh, improved transparency will not change things very much or even make things even worse. You know, Herbert Simon, one of uh, the great uh, intellectual influences on me, eloquently put uh, way back in the you know, 1940s, 50s, and 60s in his theory of boundary rationality that Usually, it is our ability to process information and make decisions that is the fundamental constraint to rational decisions, not the lack of information. You know, when you think about it, we are already drowning in the, a sea of information. And actually, adding more information to that is uh, not going to uh, improve uh, the quality of a uh, decision. You know, Andy Haldane of the Bank of England in a paper commented that an investor in a typical CDO would need to read more than a billion pages of relevant prospect, prospectus uh, information to understand its ingredients fully. Huh? Does anyone bother to do that? No, we simply do not have the time. Yeah? Even if we have the time, we do not have the brain power to absorb all this information. Huh? So given this, I would actually agree with Alan Greenspan, the disgraced former chairman of the US Federal Reserve Board, when he argues that the financial system today has become too complex to regulate. But unlike him, I would argue that the solution therefore lies in not giving up regulation, because that's what he wants, yeah? but in making the system more manageable 
by basically making it simpler, by heavily regulating or even banning overly complex financial instruments that cannot be proven safe. Now, a lot of people find this uh, suggestion quite outrageous, but when you think about it, we do it, do the kind of thing with many other things all the time. Yeah? Think about drugs approval procedure. Yeah? You cannot just uh, invent a chemical and uh, sell the drug. You have to go through rigorous process of experiment, yeah? randomized controlled experiment, yeah? to show that this drug actually has more benefits than harms. Huh? And why do we that at the same time think that people can invent a financial product whose consequences they do not understand and wait until it causes a havoc and then say we may have to regulate it. Yeah? Actually, we are not even doing that. You know, I mean, can you imagine if <coughs> The drug world equivalent of CDO has uh, caused the kind of havoc that it has caused uh, in the last few years. We would have already banned it. Yeah? How come financial products are immune to this uh, the kind of control by the society? Yeah? You know, I mean, these uh, the <laughs> financial instruments are not some natural phenomenon. I mean, they were man-made. Yeah? We can control it. We should control it. Yeah? So actually, by uh, making it simpler, we can control the system better. I mean, it uh, just is a very disingenuous argument to say that, well, the com system has uh, become too complex and we cannot regulate it anymore. Yeah? Well, how about uh, thing three? Um, most people in rich countries are paid more than they should be including myself. You know, we have been told by free market economists that people are paid what they are worth, so we should not complain about income inequality. You know, so if uh, Mr. Diamond at Barclays gets paid, I don't know, that 80 million pounds per year, that must be because it's worth it, you know, what I call the L'Oreal principle. You know? Now, as a result, we have come to think that people in poor countries must be poor because they are not very productive. Eh? Because if they were productive, they must be getting paid a lot more. Eh? But as I do in the book, they take the case of two bus drivers, well, imaginary bus drivers. One guy is Indian, and he's called Ram, who drives his bus in New Delhi. And another guy is uh, called Sven, and he does the same job in Stockholm. Sven gets paid about 50 times what Ram does, but is that because Sven drives 50 times better? Well, first of all, I'm not sure whether you can measure driving skills in that kind of way. Huh? But secondly, even if you could, is it possible that you know, someone drives 50 times better than another. I, okay, maybe, I mean, if you're comparing Lewis Hamilton with me, maybe it's uh, true, but, you know, two regular bus drivers, yeah? how is it possible that one guy drives uh, 50 times uh, better than the other? And if anything, it will be 
Ram, who is a better driver because uh, he has to, what, <laughs> drive on a road like this. Yeah? You know, seriously, I mean, has a Sven who drives on a road like this, uh, has ever had to dodge a cow when he was doing his job. Yeah? But Ram has to, yeah, dodge a cow, dodge children, dodge bicycles stacked three meters high with uh, food crates, yeah? dodge the rickshaw, God knows what. Yeah? So how come someone who uh, very arguably is a better driver is paid less? I would say the main reason why that happens is, simply put, protectionism, immigration control. If you totally freed immigration, 80, maybe 90% of the workforce in the rich countries can be and will be replaced. No? And I'm not just talking about bus drivers and cleaners, you know? I'm talking about, I don't know, I mean, bankers, engineers, medical doctors, economists. You know, I should know because I replaced a British guy 21 years ago when I got my job in Cambridge. <laughs> now, I'm not advocating a full liberalization of immigration. I don't have to do that because I'm not a free market economist. But uh, uh, most other free market economists who want to liberalize everything, why don't they argue for liberalization of immigration? Okay, there are some people who you know, say that, like uh, the Indian economists at Yale, T. N. Srinivasan, but I mean, most other free market economists that don't even want to talk about immigration issues. You know? The fact that very few free market economists actually advocate full liberalization of immigration proves my earlier point that markets are fundamentally political constructs. Now, the flip side of this story, uh, which is uh, even more interesting, is that poor countries are poor, not because of their poor people, but because of their rich people. This is very interesting because uh, that, uh, when you meet uh, rich people from poor countries, they'll complain about their poor people till the cows come home. Yeah? I mean, if uh, these guys work like the Japanese and you know, disciplined, uh, were disciplined like the Germans and were as inventive as the Americans will be a powerful country and look at all these good-for-nothings, yeah? wasting their time. Well, actually, you have to tell those people that, sir, uh, it's actually because of you why your countries are poor because, you know, as uh, you see in the example of Ram, most poor people in poor countries can hold their own against uh, their rich country counterparts very often better than you know, their rich country counterparts. But the rich in poor countries actually cannot do that. So it is their failure to pull the rest of the country up rather than their poor people pulling the rest of the country down that is making poor countries poor. Now that leaves the rich in the rich countries. So can they now say that, well, we only deserve yeah, what we get. Yeah? We are the guys who are worth our money. Yeah? Well, I don't think so. 
What those people don't often realize is that their high productivity critically depends on the fact that they were born into or at least migrated to societies with advanced technologies, well-organized firms, good institutions, and high-quality fiscal infrastructure. And most of these are things that have been collectively accumulated over time and not something that those individuals have created themselves. You know, in this uh, context, uh, I have this quote from Warren Buffett, uh, a brilliant quote uh, from an interview that he did in, uh, way back in 1995. He said, you know, actually, I believe that most of the money I made, I owe to the society. Just think about it. I mean, drop me in the middle of Bangladesh. What am I going to become? You know, I'll be a struggling farmer. I'm rich only because I was born in the United States where my particular set of skills are highly, well, in my view, excessively valued. And I don't see that it's all because of me that I have become rich. You know, I mean, he's very correct. Hmm? Because that, uh, our individual productivity has a fundamentally collective characteristic. And when we, only when we realize that, we can devise a fair system of compensation. Right, how much uh, time do I have left? Um, do I have five, ten minutes? Yeah? yeah. Okay, so one last thing, mainly because I can show you some nice pictures. Um, is this. People in poor countries are more entrepreneurial than poor people in rich countries. Now, <clears throat> this man once uh, famously said that the problem with the French is that they don't have the word for entrepreneurship. <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> I don't speak French, but I think there's something strange there. <laughs> well, you know, the, you know, you cannot expect uh, too much from... <laughs> no, uh, seriously, I mean, you know, he, he uh, at least when he said that he had to run the whole world, so how do you expect him to uh, speak French as well? Yeah? <laughs> but uh, actually, that uh, you know, his French was a bit... Hmm? Uh, Shameful, but uh, I think he was uh, articulating a fairly common Anglo-American prejudice against France as an undynamic and laid-back country full of meddling bureaucrats, pompous waiters, and sheep-burning farmers, like this. Eh? <laughs> now, actually, this uh, conception of uh, France turned out to be completely wrong, as I'll show you later. But the perspective behind this uh, statement is actually quite widely accepted. You need entrepreneurial people to have a successful economy. So when people from rich countries uh, go to poor countries and see a scene like this, they say, aha, we know why these countries are poor. You know, all these men having 11 cups of mint tea and you know, smoking away their hookah for seven hours a day, I mean, uh, no wonder this country is poor. Huh? 
Well, actually, the anyone who is uh, from or has lived uh, for a period in a developing country will know that this is actually the less typical scene in those countries because you know these countries are full of people who are basically one man entrepreneurs you know trying to make uh, this uh, little bit of money by coming up with all sorts of things to buy and sell you know and the ingenuity uh, is uh, quite uh, impressive you know i don't think uh, this uh, job exists uh, anymore uh, but in the old days, uh, when you had to queue up uh, in front of the American embassy to get a visa uh, appointment, in many countries, including my native South Korea, there used to be these uh, people who one can only describe as uh, professional cures. Yeah, basically these guys uh, get up at 4.30 in the morning and line up in front of the American embassy. Eh? Around 8.45, you know, some guy in smart suit will uh, come and say, well, that spot looks very nice. Uh, how much is it? Yeah. Well, the, the 50 dinars or you know, pesos or whatever, and you have uh, made your wage uh, for the day. Huh? You know, I mean, these countries are full of people who are buying and selling things that you could never imagine existed. Yeah? You know, these uh, professional cures or, I mean, people selling spots uh, to back from, you know, the local thugs. You know? I mean, I, I, another example is that, that, that when you go to countries like uh, South Korea and uh, South Africa and Brazil and park your car on the street, usually someone comes along and says, oh, can I watch your car? And my friends uh, would uh, pay this guy. I'm saying, why? And my friends tell me, well, actually what he means is that if you don't pay me, I'll slash your tire. <laughs> you know, these people basically have to become very ingenious uh, to make uh, a living. In contrast, uh, most citizens of uh, rich countries have not even come near to becoming an entrepreneur. They mostly work for companies, many of them employing tens of thousands of people, doing very specialized work, and in the process realizing someone else's entrepreneurial vision. And if you compare the numbers, you will see that the chance of someone from a developing country being an entrepreneur is anything between 2 and 13 times higher than that for someone from a rich country. And very interestingly, the U.S. has a lower proportion of people who you can call entrepreneurs, people who are employed by themselves. So W.S. comment was a classic case of the pot calling the kettle black. Huh? I mean, if you are a Norwegian, there's 6.7% yeah, chance that you run your own business. If you are from Benin, there's nearly 90% chance that you do. So who's uh, more entrepreneurial? Huh? And in developing countries, uh, the entrepreneurial skills of these people are tested to the limits. Huh? Because things go wrong all the time. Yeah? Power cuts, yeah? 
the delivery truck uh, that, that wouldn't come because it uh, fell into a pothole yet again. Yeah? The petty bureaucrats that are uh, kind of bending or even inventing rules to extract uh, the bribes from you. Yeah? You have to kind of be really that, that, uh, thinking on the hoof uh, that to survive uh, in that kind of environment. But the paradox is that despite that, it's uh, those countries where more at uh, a far higher proportion of uh, people are entrepreneurs and where their entrepreneurial skills are tested to the limit that are poorer. Hmm? The reason, of course, is because entrepreneurship is not an individualistic endeavor anymore, if it ever was. You know, the, guy who invented uh, the theory of entrepreneurship, Joseph Schumpeter, the Austrian economist. In his book, uh, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, he predicted uh, that uh, capitalism will be replaced by socialism, not through violent revolution, but because capitalism, well, especially the capitalist uh, forms, will lose Entrepreneurs. Huh? Schumpeter was writing this in the 1930s and 40s when companies were becoming more and more bureaucratized. Huh? So he said that you know capitalism is driven by these entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, those people are dying out. Companies are being taken over by what he disparagingly called executive times, and this is the sad dynamism from entrepreneurship. Huh? And people will then ask, well, what's the point of having capitalism then? Because it uh, creates uh, inequality. It's not dynamic anymore. Let's have socialism. Eh? Well, I'm simplifying, but uh, that's how he essentially saw it. Yeah? Now, he was, you know, he was a great guy, but uh, in that respect, he was completely wrong. Yeah? Because capitalism became more dynamic after he yeah, predicted that it will become less dynamic. Yeah? Basically, we have uh, made entrepreneurship into a collective endeavor. Now, this point nicely links back to thing three, where I emphasize the collective nature of individual productivity. So basically, we create wealth, we raise productivity with the help of a whole host uh, of uh, collective institutions. Huh? Well, the, let me wind up. I mean, basically, in this book, I have tried my best uh, to dispel the widespread perception that economics is too complicated for non economists. You know, actually, uh, when you think about this, it's uh, very interesting because people have all sorts of strong opinions on all sorts of things. Yeah? I'm sure you all have very strong views on, I don't know, Afghanistan, nuclear power, global warming, yeah, North Korea. Despite the fact that you don't have any technical qualification to judge those things. Yeah? But when it comes to economic issues, a lot of people say, well, it's technical. I don't know anything about it. Yeah? Well, it should be the same. Yeah? 
you know, that, uh, in the same way that, that you have strong view on North Korea, you should uh, have strong view on, I don't know, bankers' bonuses or inflation or whatever. Hmm? Unfortunately, my profession has been very successful in making the others believe that it's so difficult no one else can understand it. Huh? But believe me, as I say in the book, 95% of economics is common sense. Of course, made deliberately complicated. But, you know, I mean, we have our professional interests. Huh? Medical doctors wouldn't you know, explain everything that they write on their you know, kind of uh, chart. You know? I mean, they, they'll write all these uh, mysterious words, uh, which uh, probably means aspirin or something. <laughs> Lawyers, you know, I mean, I have this document which allegedly says that I own this particular flat in Cambridge, but you know, for all I know, it could mean that you know, I mean, uh, next June I'll be kicked out. You know? <laughs> well, basically, through this book, I w wanted to equip my readers with fundamental economic reasoning and some basic but often misunderstood facts about capitalism so that they can better exercise what I call active economic citizenship and demand right courses of action from our policymakers and business leaders. This is actually becoming more and more crucial as the world economy slides into what is likely to be a lost decade or even two of slow growth, high unemployment, job insecurity, stagnant or even falling wages and growing social tensions. So please, uh, I mean, uh, especially if you are not an economist, uh, please uh, uh, take a look at this book and try to you know, kind of, uh, educate yourself a bit uh, in economic issues so that uh, you can do your duty as a you know, citizen of a democratic country. You know? I mean, uh, we all have uh, uh, some duty to participate in public debate and uh, you need to equip yourself with uh, some of this knowledge. Uh, I'm not saying that you all have to become an expert in economics. I mean, you know, we, we need uh, division of labor, we need uh, specialization, but you know, that surprisingly, in areas of economics, people just uh, do not want to know about it, you know, despite the fact that this uh, actually affects you a lot more than what Mr. Kim Jong-il does in North Korea. Huh? So please, thank you. Thank you, Harjun, for a wide-ranging, insightful discussion of many of the ills of the world he ends with a plea for active economic citizenship by all of us on the grounds that even when we don't totally understand the dynamics of, for instance, North Korea, the market for oil, global climate change, and a whole host of other problems, each of us does feel obliged to add our voice to the cacophony that is a democracy to try and allow a better outcome to emerge. 
So his Harjun's view is ultimately, in my view, an optimistic one for how each of us can be active economic participants. He has been kind enough now to agree to taking some, to engage in a question and answer session. So I hope that you will all now actively uh, <laughs> use your economic citizenship to challenge or support or engage with Harjun on some of these very large issues that he has introduced for us this evening. So I thought what we could do is maybe take three or four questions. Yeah, I think that usually and then works you can better, come yeah. back. So first, the gentleman in red. Hi, my name is Ramin, a member of public. You said that uh, poor countries have lots of entrepreneurs comparing to rich countries. But don't you think that's a symptom of underdevelopment because they have a large informal sector and informal sector, everyone is an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So basically, they need to get rid of this yeah. entrepreneurship yeah, and yeah, move exactly, towards yeah. collective institutions. Okay, the gentleman in the green sweater with glasses. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just have a question. You mentioned about trickle-down economics not being particularly productive. I wondered if we were wanting to inject stimulus capital into an economy, where it would be best to inject that. Um, my thoughts is, would it be to give it to the poor? Sorry, um, would, it be would it be to give it to the poor, yeah. double pensions uh -huh. or things like that for a short period? Just a comment on that. Yeah. Okay. The man in the white shirt, right in the middle, if we can get a microphone to him. I, I'm wondering, Professor, whether some of these issues are also re related to um, a nation's endowment in natural resources, the availability of oil or coal or mm -hmm. other factors. Um, whether they're related to population issues, scale and density of population, the existence of developed transport facilities, uh, locational factors, the existence of ports, mm -hmm. um, sheltered harbors. Is it not the case that the kinds of issues we've been discussing here are multivariate? Sure. Yeah. Okay, so we'll take, we'll take that as a yeah. first round, yeah. and then we'll come back to, to the rest of you. You've got your hands up. Yeah, that, that, thank you very much for very good questions. Yes, I mean, the, the first question, I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, the, these entrepreneurs are doing it out of desperation. I mean, I wasn't trying to praise it. It's uh, something that we actually want to get rid of. You know? We don't want uh, everyone to become micro-entrepreneurs. I mean, I have a chapter on the, uh, sorry, in the, that chapter, the thing 15, I actually the, have a brief discussion about how the cu currently popular idea of microfinance is uh, misguided in the sense because it uh, you know, believes that everyone should be a you know, one-person entrepreneur selling, I don't know, fried chicken and you know, about uh, the two handkerchiefs, you know? I mean, I mean, uh, sometimes works, but uh, mostly it's uh, the, something that we don't actually want to support in the long run. Yeah? Um, stimulus, yes. I mean, in the short run, it's uh, widely accepted that uh, wisdom in economics that uh, the poor have higher propensity to consume. So when lack of demand, like uh, today, is the problem, it will have uh, more effect of stimulus if you give it to the poor. Yeah? In the short run, there is uh, no question about that. Yeah? In the long run, of course, uh, that, uh, it means that uh, the 
you might be reducing your investment. Eh? But as I said, I mean, our rich uh, the people these days, I mean, they don't want to invest. Yeah? So the, I'm not sure whether the giving it to them is uh, even better for the long run. But uh, if you want to give them money, I mean, the give them uh, money with condition. You know, one thing I don't understand, I mean, the, when you give uh, the social welfare to poor people, everyone says we have to put conditions. Yeah? You know, they shouldn't engage in riot, they should uh, attend school, yeah? God knows what. Yeah? When you uh, give money to the rich people, there is no condition. Yeah? Why is that? Yeah? It's the same taxpayer's money. Yeah? So if you are going to give uh, money to the banks uh, through quantitative easing and what have you, at least uh, put some condition on them. Yeah? I mean, uh, lend 60% of the money to a small business or whatever. Yeah? So that uh, we should uh, apply the same standard uh, to every area, but then, you know, as uh, the American writer Go Vidal once uh, famously said, the American economic system is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Yeah? And we have all adopted that system in the last uh, 30 years. Huh? Natural resources, location, yeah, I mean, all these things are very important. I mean, I wasn't you know, trying to say that, that uh, there's only one explanation for anything. Well, actually, the, 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 those things are not as important as uh, people often believe. I mean, I have a chapter there. Uh, let me just get up. Oops. Yes, uh, thing 11, uh, Africa is uh, not destined for underdevelopment. Uh, in that chapter, I uh, try to criticize uh, this, this currently dominant view that Africa is uh, destined for underdevelopment because it's got too much, too many natural resources, uh, many countries are landlocked, and so on and so on. So uh, basically, the, our destiny is uh, determined by geography and uh, history. Now, of course, uh, these things are very important, but we have to uh, kind of uh, have a balanced view because you know, if uh, being landlocked is uh, so bad, why are Switzerland and Austria rich? Yeah. Of course, uh, the immediate answer is, well, they have a good river system that links them to the sea. Yes, but potentially, many landlocked African countries have uh, great river systems uh, linking them to the sea. It's only because uh, they haven't invested in the, the river and made it navigable that uh, they cannot reach the sea. So actually, the, a lot of it is uh, the symptom rather than the cause of underdevelopment. <coughs> so I mean, I'm not saying that uh, these things do not matter. You know, I don't believe in Disney view of the world uh, in which uh, if you believed in yourself, you can achieve anything. Yeah? You know, there are these constraints. Yeah? Yes, uh, if you are landlocked, uh, you are more constrained, but on the other hand, you shouldn't take it as your destiny because you know, for every condition that is uh, supposed to be bad for economic development, you can find counterexamples. Yeah? So uh, being small is bad, then uh, why is uh, Luxembourg so rich? Yeah? You know, being large is so bad, that, uh, well, then why is the United States uh, so rich? And so on. So you have to kind of uh, have a balanced view on <coughs> these things. Okay. Um, 
There was a question way in the extreme, this side of the room. Yes, the, the gentleman in the orange. Thank you for your interesting insights. Uh, I wonder, uh, given what seems to be a propensity of the public to elect politicians who are willing to cut spending on education, unwilling to tackle um, financing social security and all these other um, things that the public might, the, these active economic or not so active economic citizens might seem to mm. advocate. What do you see as the worst consequences of allowing the public in a democracy to have too much control over economic policy mm -hmm, setting? Mm -hmm. Or perhaps the most uh, serious advantages of economic policy setting that is beyond the you know purview of democratic sanctions. Yeah. Okay. Now there are a whole host of questions from here. The gentleman in the black t-shirt. Thing 21, I think, is the for me the biggest surprise. Maybe you can say a few words about it. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay. And then the man in the orange hoodie. <laughs> Thanks, uh, I hope you like it. Um, you say, you point out that um, making the rich richer hasn't made the poor richer. And, and that's you know, probably valid. Hasn't, haven't neoliberal policies, making the rich richer, deliver, delivered on development in the last 30 years? Mm -hmm. Have we got better services? Have we got um, uh, more investment in infrastructure? Yeah. I mean, is it a problem that the, the poor haven't gotten richer? Mm -hmm. Three questions. Yeah. Let's, let's hit one more. Okay. The, the woman in blue. Um, do you think it's like the rich countries and their economies' responsibility to help the uh, so-called underdeveloped countries, given the current stagnant growth and the fact that rich countries' economies make the underdeveloped countries' economies poorer? Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Let's let's conclude that round. Hand it over, and then yeah. we'll come back again. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, Well, the, the gentleman upstairs, uh, yes, I mean, you know, if you believe in democracy as I do, you have to accept the consequences even if uh, the public makes what you think is a stupid choice. But I think uh, what we have to strive for is that the public makes uh, these uh, choices with better information with better understanding of uh, what is going on. And actually, the, the, my book is uh, full of those uh, things. I mean, the, you know, some of the things that you thought were well-established facts, sometimes uh, they are complete uh, the falsehood. But uh, usually, the, depending on how you see the same thing, you can have a radically different take on things. You know, the, for example, that uh, the, Question about you know, hasn't still neoliberal policies uh, made the world richer and you know, better service and so on? Yes, I mean a lot of people accept that you know thanks to globalization, free market, free trade, whatever they want to advocate, the world is our world is uh, richer than ever. Yeah? Now this sounds 
quite convincing, but when you think about it, the world will be richer than ever as far as we have positive rate of growth. So what I'm questioning in this book is uh, whether these uh, neoliberal policies have made the world richer than possible otherwise. And my answer is no, because uh, the world economy in the 60s and 70s, when we had all this regulation and uh, bad things, supposedly bad things, uh, the world economy was uh, growing at around 3% in per capita terms. Huh? In the last three years, uh, the growth rate has been barely 1.5% and falling. So we could have been even richer had we used uh, different policies. We could have been more evenly richer had we used different policies. That's how you have to see it. So while the sort of standard proposition that the world is richer than ever is true, it doesn't tell you the whole truth. Yeah? So uh, we need to uh, uh, have a more informed debate. Another example could be that thing about my thing 21, big government makes people more, not less, open to changes. You know, I'm uh, there basically referring uh, to the fact that when you, you know, the, the standard uh, free market belief is that the system works on two legs, yeah. greed and fear. Yeah. So greed at the top and fear at the bottom. Yeah. Now, on this ground, they say, well, if you make people's life too comfortable, if you get rid of fear from their life, like fear of unemployment, yeah, fear of poverty, fear of you know, destitution, then people will become lazy. And very often the, the welfare state is uh, attacked uh, on that ground. But actually my view the advanced in this uh, chapter is that too much fear makes people conservative. You know, the, the one excellent example comes from my native South Korea, the, which actually starts a chapter where, with the, the, sort of, uh, the disintegration of the traditional sort of the Korean economic miracle model since the Asian financial crisis, the society, uh, job insecurity in the, the society has increased enormously. So uh, has it uh, made the, the Koreans uh, the ha harder working and more risk-taking? No. All the clever Korean kids now want to become medical doctor. Because uh, th that way, at least you have a license. Yeah? No one wants to study engineering because uh, that means working for, say, Samsung or Hyundai. And uh, they know that they could be sacked when they are 42. Yeah? They don't want that. Yeah? So. I why are the American workers, I mean, at least uh, the organized ones, are so resistant to changes? Because uh, the, they, the alternative is too horrible. Yeah? They cannot even go to hospital if uh, they lose their job. Yeah? Paradoxically, in the Scandinavian countries, people are mo a lot more open to free trade and uh, openness and uh, restructuring and so on because uh, they have 
good welfare state. They don't have to the, the worry about the, the not being able to go to hospital. They you know, have uh, subsidized retraining and relocation. This is why countries like, I mean, okay, the take on Norway because it's uh, the become an oil state recently, but uh, countries like uh, Finland and Sweden, despite having welfare states double the size of uh, the United States in proportional terms, has grown faster than the United States throughout uh, the post-war period, including the last 20 years when the United States is supposed to have an uh, economic renaissance. So, you know, once again, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, what yeah, you normally hear about yeah, this and that is necessarily false, but, you know, you, you kind of widen the scope or look at things from a slightly different angle, then the reality begins to look very different. Huh? Uh, do the rich countries have a duty to help uh, developing countries? Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, one reason is, uh, I mean, the history of imperialism. I mean, I think uh, that, that yeah, uh, has to be taken into account. But uh, more importantly, you know, in my previous uh, book called Bad Samaritans, I argue that uh, actually it will be in the enlightened self-interest of the rich countries to help the developing countries because uh, the, by encouraging them to grow faster and become richer, they are actually increasing the opportunities that they can have in terms of export, investment, and so on. You know, just do a thought experiment. I mean, that in the last, uh, say, since uh, Mr. Deng Xiaoping started uh, economic reform in the late 1970s, the Chinese economy has uh, grown by basically 10 times. Huh? It has become 10 times bigger. Yeah? Now imagine that, uh, that he accidentally picked up a copy of Milton Friedman in 1978 and went for Russian-style Big Bang reform. Probably the Chinese uh, economy will be twice bigger than what it was yeah, back in the late 1970s. Yeah? Now by letting, uh, uh, sorry, using policies that are highly unorthodox, but uh, are more suitable to their needs, the Chinese have managed to yeah, create this uh, huge economy which allow the rich countries uh, to export and invest far more. I mean, that even if uh, that you took 100% of Chinese market uh, through Big Bang open door policy back in, say, 1979, it'll be, you know, if uh, my hypothetical example is uh, uh, correct, it will be smaller than taking 30% of today's Chinese market. Yeah? So actually that, uh, it's very short-sighted of uh, de developed countries to make things uh, difficult for developing countries uh, to develop. I mean, I have a whole argument uh, that, uh, related to this uh, in my book uh, Bad Samaritan, so if you are interested uh, you can, yeah, actually I Yeah, I forgot to put that information up uh, in case uh, people are interested in uh, finding out more about uh, uh, my, my arguments. Yeah.
Okay, I think we can squeeze in one more round of questions before the evening has to end. So, the gentleman here, and then if you could get ready your questions. So, gentleman here first. Hi. Um, just to go back to the, uh, I guess, the, the allegation that the Western world's got a bad deal out of the rich people because it's given them all this income and they haven't really invested it. It kind of makes me wonder where, where, that, where it's gone. Because they can't just have consumed it, otherwise we wouldn't have a concentration of wealth. And it strikes me the most obvious thing they've probably done with it is they've just invested it abroad, outside America, most in the developing world, and haven't they therefore helped to bring a huge swathe of the people out of poverty? Mm -hmm. Okay. The woman in green, right next to you. Yeah. Yeah, not a question, but just a comment to give you a present-day illustration of developing country entrepreneurship with U.S. embassies. In Kingston, Jamaica, where I'm from, there is a queue, of course, outside of the embassy. Okay. Uh, but there's a big sign and guards who say what you cannot carry into the embassy, which includes any sharp objects, obviously, but also cell phones, cameras, and umbrellas. And should you forget to leave this in your car and you reach the door and you would like to go in, uh -huh. there are persons out there, predominantly women, who will, for a small fee, give you a transparent bag into which you can place the contents wow. and to keep it for you so that when you go in, complete your appointment and come out, you can get your bag back. Thank you very much. But there is an unwritten code of trust that uh -huh. we are, all of us, citizens of this country, but uh -huh. strangers to the U.S. Yeah. So you can be sure that when you come out from the embassy, you will get your bag back. Mm. Very good. Okay. The woman in the extreme, in the extreme corner of the theater? My question is, what do we do with this knowledge? Mm -hmm. So what are the two or three things that you want us all to take away from this, and how do we use that information? Very good question. And then the very last question, the gentleman in blue, the, yes, the one who's got his hand up now. Hi, I have a question for both of you, really. Uh, are you not depressed by the fact that the leading economics courses in this country are applied mathematics courses rather than social science courses? <laughs> right. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, on the last point first, uh, yeah, that's why I say in thing 23, the last chapter of the book, that uh, good economic policies do not require good economists. Because uh, unfortunately, many of my professional colleagues uh, have become basically that stop uh, being interested in the real world. So I mean, there's uh, a bit of a problem there. But uh, you know, economics is uh, uh, quite a powerful subject. So I, I hope uh, more of my colleagues that uh, kind of uh, try to apply their considerable brain power to more practical things. I'm not saying that we should all do things like. I do. I mean, we need division of labor. I mean, we need, you know, I mean, the, the people doing strange things too, you know, to. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I mean, the, what I object to, however, is, uh, you know, when you think about this, it, uh, very strange because uh, today, you know, a lot of people say that I'm not an economist, you know. Hajun uh, Chang is not an economist because he doesn't do, you know, hyper-mathematics, he doesn't run regressions. Yeah? 
They call me, well, the, the, the apologists are two sociologists, uh, call me a sociologist, uh, which is <laughs> unfortunately the, the worst uh, term of abuse among economists. Yeah? <laughs> I didn't invent it, so don't blame me. Yeah? But, you know, it's a very strange uh, notion of what economics should be because, uh, you know, think about the biology department. Right? There are people doing all sorts of different things to understand this very complex thing called living organisms. Eh? So there are people going to, I don't know, Burundi and sitting with gorillas, yeah, watching them. Yeah? People doing yeah, experiment with uh, the rats. Yeah? I mean, people building uh, game-theoretic models of uh, animal behavior, yeah? people uh, digging up uh, fossils, uh, people doing DNA analysis, uh, but they are all called biologists. Yeah? I mean, we need uh, that kind of uh, intellectual pluralism uh, within economics. Yeah? That is what is missing. I'm not against yeah, mathematics. I'm not against econometrics. I'm not you know, against uh, any particular way of uh, studying economics because, uh, you know, the economy is a very complex thing. Uh, you can understand it in just one way. I mean, that goes back to what Daniel was saying earlier. I mean, this uh, worms and nets uh, business, uh, you know, I, mean, I have not, no problem with people doing those kind of things, but if uh, too many people do those kind of things and people do not think about other issues, yeah, then, then we have a problem. Yeah? Uh, where has uh, the money gone? The, that's a good question. Yeah? Well, some of it has gone into conspicuous consumption, of course, yeah? because unlike the capitalists of the 19th century, capitalists of today have a much higher propensity to consume. You know? I mean, yeah, the, the whole thing about, you know, uh, Protestant ethic of uh, Marx Weber, yeah, the whole assumption in classical economics that we can basically, for modeling purpose, uh, assume that capitalists invest everything they earn, they had the uh, basis in empirical reality yeah, because uh, the, the culture in the capitalist class at the time was like that. I mean, that has changed. Another is, yes, I mean, they've you know, taken it uh, to other countries. Uh, that's uh, another part of the story. But uh, yet another part of the story is that uh, a lot of resources have just disappeared in the sense that you, know, you, you have kind of misallocation and waste of resource in terms of you know, unemployment, unnecessary unemployment, in terms of I don't know, the people doing degrees in chemistry and uh, working in banks. Yeah? No, seriously, I mean, I, I once uh, was in a meeting with uh, Professor David King, the renowned chemist uh, who was once the chief scientific advisor to the British government. He said, you know, 60% of uh, people who did PhD under me are working in the city. Yeah? No, I mean, I have no problem with uh, people working in finance, but. The trouble is that uh, we have you know, wasted a lot of resource training these people as chemists, and then uh, that resource is completely wasted. Yeah? Well, anyway, I mean, that's uh, one minor example, but uh, basically uh, by you know, failing to create uh, full employment and so on, uh, we have uh, wasted a lot of resources. Huh? So, I mean, very good question. Uh, someone has to find out. I haven't uh, done it. So uh, we need to think about that. Now, what do we do? Well, I mean, we can engage that uh, many different levels, you know. 
Okay, I mean, uh, if you, you know, have some you know, spare time, you can uh, fly to New York and you know, occupy the Wall Street, but <laughs> I don't think uh, that's an option for most people. So uh, you uh, can uh, you know, engage by you know, uh, writing to your MP or you know, uh, organizing uh, some local campaigns against, against this and that, but you know, the least you can do is uh, to remain aware, yeah? to remain that uh, there are these issues and voice your opinion to people around you and to pollsters uh, if they you know, happen to come across you. Because that, you know, I seriously doubt whether the current British government, for example, would have uh, cut spending so much if, uh, I don't know, opinion poll said that 99% uh, of the people are against it. So, I mean, just being aware and not letting yeah, uh, our politicians and business leaders and well, uh, uh, economists that, uh, get away the murder, so to speak, that's already a good start because uh, when, when people are aware of these problems and keep voicing uh, these concerns, uh, I mean, in a democratic uh, system, our leaders have to watch it and you know I mean you can also at the personal level do a lot of uh, different things I mean depending on where you work you know, uh, how you live your life uh, so you know that I'm not you know, by by saying these things are uh, necessarily insisting that everyone should now buy you know, 10 economics books and you know, become some kind of uh, semi-professional economist and you know, write to the MPs every day and you know, uh, participate in the, the demonstrations all the time. I mean, you know, you cannot do that. You know? We are too busy. That, that. But, you know, in every walk of life, uh, the, in, in everything you do, there are ways to yeah. kind of uh, inject these ideas at different levels in different ways uh, to yeah, kind of uh, make uh, our society better. You know, very often when I teach especially the, about the developing countries. My students say, well, does it, uh, what the gentleman said, aren't you depressed? Yeah? Because development is so difficult. Yeah? There's so much poverty. There's so much suffering. Yeah? Is there any point? Yeah? Well, you know, I then tell them that I live by what the famous Italian Marxist uh, Antonio Gramsci once said that you have to have pessimism of the intellect but optimism of the will. You know, a lot of things that people thought were impossible or outrageous have come true. You know, 200 years ago, a lot of people thought the American economy will collapse if they abolished slavery. 100 years ago, they put women in prison in this country for asking for vote. 50 years ago, basically, all the founding fathers of today's developing nations were hunted down by the British and the French as terrorists. Yeah? Well, including uh, the Menachem Begin uh, and all the early founders of Israel. Yeah? You know, 20 years ago, only 20 years ago, Margaret Thatcher, well, the, a bit more than 20 now, the 20, uh, the 
two years ago, I think, Margaret Thatcher famously said that anyone who thinks that in our lifetime there'll be black majority rule in South Africa is living in cloud cuckoo land. Yeah, yeah I mean, but you know, all these things have come true. Of course, there are people who had to fight for it. Yeah? But you know, you have to have uh, that kind of perspective because uh, the things are you know, don't change that easily. But you know. A lot of uh, things that you thought uh, would never happen have happened. Yeah? Mm. Very good. Thank you. Um, okay, before we conclude the evening, I, um, the, the very last question did pose a challenge, both to Harjun and, and myself. If I could just spend five seconds on that. The question that was posed was, you know, why isn't it depressing that the, the finest centers of economics learning, not just in this country, but everywhere in the world, have really become centers of applied mathematics study? and should we do something about this? I think that that's on the one hand true to some extent, but also it, um, it denies that there's actually quite a lot of diversity in the way economists do their work. Harjun's work contrasted with the work of Worms and Nets, uh, a huge variety of, of approaches in public finance, in international trade and development, all of which are practiced not just here but everywhere else. What is true is that in two fields in particular, macroeconomics and finance, mm -hmm. uh, have become extremely specialized and technical. And interestingly, it is probably macroeconomics and finance that were at the heart of thinking that led up to the global financial crisis. And I think that I would agree mm -hmm. with the question that we need to broaden our approaches there. And actually, one of the offshoots, you know, the, the, there's a famous line that says we should not let you know, a, a global financial crisis is a terrible thing to waste, and we have used this global financial crisis to try and learn lessons, to try and get lessons from history and other writers to enrich the discourse in macroeconomics and finance. And so I think we are moving forwards in this degree. Now, before we end the evening, I have to make an announcement that, you know, LSE, my goodness, LSE is just a 24-7, never-ending source of goodies and delights. <laughs> Because not only have we had this evening's lecture, but right after this, there will be book sales right outside the theater, and Harjun has agreed to undertake a signing of books that you should, after purchasing outside the theater, bring in to the stage, because that is where the signing will occur. Now, we've run quite a bit over time. We've, uh, we've tested the resources of the people, resources and patience of people helping us. So I really, at this point, need to thank, first of all, our speaker, Harjun Chang, if you could join me. And also, and also a big thank you to the audience as well for your patience, your attention, and for all your interesting questions. So thank you very much.